0: Welcome to Finding Holiness, where we delve into timeless Torah wisdom, revealing the sacred in everyday moments. Join us on a journey to elevate your spirituality and discover holiness in every aspect of life. I'm your host, Rabbi David Kadosh, and together let's embark on a path of spiritual exploration. I hope you enjoy this next episode. Good evening, everyone. How are you all doing? Oh, amazing. Um, thank you for coming. Um, to uh, part two or part three, I don't know. I think we'll call it part three. We'll say part one and two was was last time with Rabbi Pinto. Um, to the what we call the the, the marriage the marriage harmony uh, mini series class, um, and uh, I, I'm honored just to just to sit here and and give this. It's whenever whenever we sit and we talk about. Whatever it is connected to marriage, whether it's shalom bayit or it's laws of talmud mishvacha or different issues that come along in marriage, um, I have to say off the bat, I, I'm 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 not a, a marriage counselor. I'm not a marriage expert. The only expertise I have is my own experience. That's what I, that's what I have. Um, but I think there's basics, and I think sometimes. The basics are known, but need to be reminded to, to everyone. I know Rabbi Pinto did a good job of that in, uh, in the first couple of parts. He went over a few halachal too. I don't want to overstep what he said. And of course, for, for the listeners that are listening later online, if they want to hear what he said, then go back. We have it recorded you know, um, and sent out. So it's on the podcast as well that so you can hear it on what he said. Um, very valuable information. Uh, I personally attended the men's one, which I, which I thought was very enlightening and uh, <clears throat> and very powerful. He brought a lot of sources. He brought a lot of Mareme Komot, quoting the Rambam a few times. Um, I myself will quote the Rambam at least once today. Um, so I, I was debating with myself how am I going to go about this? You know, I have Bliay Narat. I have a wide-range audience here in front of me, and I have an even wider range of people listening to me, online or in the future. So we're going to have future wives. We're going to have just newly married wives, and we're going to have, we'll call them experienced experienced wives. So what do I do? What do I say that it's going to be, pleasing and acceptable to everyone sitting here, and the answer is like there is not one thing that everybody can hear that applies to them at that you know certain time right so some things I'm gonna say is is more directed to the newlywed, and some things I'm gonna say is more directed to those that are further along in their journey, and some things yes indeed apply to to all um, so. I hope you, you forgive me in advance, because I'm going to apologize. If some things I say, I'm like, oh, okay, that's not for me. All right, we're going to try to cover a few, a few ideas here. So what am I going to say? What am I going to talk about? Truth is, I, I discovered a book that um, is written by a marriage expert. His name is Rabbi Ben Sion Schaefer. You may have heard of him. And he has a book that is called 10 Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. (laughs) That's the name of his book. It sold a lot of copies. 10 Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples uh, Make. And uh, Rabbi Schaefer speaks around the world. He actually addressed during COVID, he actually addressed uh, the the Sephardi community of toronto i believe it was magen david that brought him in in conjunction with a lot of the synagogues and he spoke about uh, about various topics um it was one of the zoom things while we were all stuck at home so um I, I i went through a lot of the stuff that he that he talks about and i'm not going to talk about all 10 dumb mistakes that very smart couples make but i think i'm going to i'm going to Go and talk about seven of them. I think seven of them are really important. Uh, some you might feel connected to more than others, but that specifically, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll overlook, we'll see the, what these seven are. Because almost every couple at some at some point of their of their life together has this revelation. It's not, the, it's not a, a good revelation. It could be two weeks after. It could be um, the next morning. Hopefully not. It could be a few years afterwards, where they wake up and they say, "Wait a second, who is this guy? <laughs> well, I don't know him. This is, this is not the guy I buried or I remember when I was dating. Um, who is this girl? Did I did I did I make a mistake? Is this is this a girl that I remember when I was going out?" Is the guy I remember who was so kind and opening doors for me, right? did not seem so. And the truth is that there is a mistake involved, but it's not the one that they think they made. And they made a combination of fundamental mistakes that he goes through in his book, uh, Thinking on Hiccups that we have to go through and overcome. And I hope, as Ratzon Hashem, to go through again just seven of these and expand on them slightly, because and of course, if you want to buy the book, go and buy the book, see all ten, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure it'll be, you'll be enlightened more. So let's start, um, and then following that, we'll look at a couple of uh, different halachic uh, issues that come up um, <coughs> with, with with regards to tarat mishpacha. So when a couple first meets, um, you know. And they, he looks into her eyes, she looks into his, ah, magic, beautiful. Everything is like, wow. So deeply in love with each other. And then you can, you can almost hear the violins playing in the background, yeah? And the birdies tweeting, and everything is going, everything's so charming. You're, you're going on this enchanted journey Every conversation takes hours, and it seems like it's, oh my God, look how much of the time, you know, we were talking for so hours. It's great, it's great, it's great. And then everything during this state is perfect. And everything he said is clever. Everything he said is funny. And each of them thought to themselves, that's it. I found the right one. Forever and ever, we're going to be happy together. And that was their mistake. That's mistake number one. Mistake number one is, that what you felt was infatuation what you felt at the beginning was a state that you didn't really understand what it truly meant and why hashem created that state of infatuation infatuation is like a drug it affects your senses it affects the way that you think it affects the way that you feel everything is wonderful during infatuation stage there's joy there's happiness you know, when you fall in love, scientists have proven that even your brain is, is going through a, a change. There is, the chemistry in your brain is going through a significant overhaul. There's a serotonin, there's a dopamine, there's adrenaline, there's a lot of things that are happening in your body when a person is, is in love. Uh, just, just embracing someone, they say for over 20 seconds, The dopamine levels skyrocket up. So the effect, actually, of falling in love, scientists compare to to drug use. They compare to cocaine use. There's a rush. There's an adrenaline. There's a push. And and that feeling of of like, oh my God, he's absolutely amazing. Oh my God, she's incredible. I will never find anyone like her. Oh yes, he has bad habits, but that's not going to bother me. Um, yes, I realize he leaves his socks on the floor. Yes, I realize he, uh, you know, he's a little bit messy, or yes, I realize she has a little bit of a temper, but that's okay because love trumps all. She's all I, okay. She'll be tolerant that I'm uh, that that uh, that this is who I am, and I'm going to be tolerant that this is who she is. And they have a clear sense that they're going to live forever and ever in that state, in that state of bliss. And therefore, to allow marriages the ability to succeed, Hashem actually gave mankind the capacity to love. But love is an instant, and it takes work, and it takes a long time. And in order to jumpstart the relationship, Hashem created this idea called infatuation. It works like sulfur on a, on a match. So, you ever picture a match? You have that just the tip of the match, is, you know, there's that sulfur there. When you strike the match, against the phosphorus that's on the matchbox, it ignites its flame, like very strong flame right away. It gets very hot, very quickly. And for a second or two, it flares up. And it flares up just enough so that the rest of the match can light. The wood of the match can, can ignite. But that flame that was originally lit, it wasn't meant to last. It wasn't meant to, to keep on going. It was just the catalyst to start the fire. Not to keep it going. If the wood catches, great, the flame did its job. Uh, it, it shined bright for a short while, but it really accomplished nothing. Infatuation works the same way, says Rabbi Schaefer. It allows the couple to begin, it starts the process, but after a while, the drug wears off, and then the music stops. And one day, somewhere along the line, in the beginning, usually it's in the beginning of the marriage, okay, if you manage to go 20 years, kola kavod, but Usually sometime at the beginning of the marriage, both the husband and wife wake up. Some could be sometimes at different times, and they say, wait, where's that magic? What happened? The spell's broken. Uh, I, I, I still feel very strongly about my husband and my wife, but why? it's different. She starts saying to herself, oh, really, he really does leave his socks on the floor, and he really doesn't care, right? And he says, oh, she, she really does get angry for you know, these little petty things. And, and it's annoying. And then you start asking yourself, but what happened? What happened to our love? We had such a strong love. The problem is, you weren't in love at that, at that moment. You were infatuated with each other. And that's a temporary state that ends. And it's, it was meant to create, to start things off. And it fades. And now it's gone. It's never to be heard again. But it's there for a purpose. As we're going to see to light the wood, to light the wood, to keep that burning. So the first really dumb mistake in marriage, according to Rabbi Schaefer, that all smart couples make, So we are all smart here, by the way, um, is that when he or she wakes up and says, I made the biggest mistake in my life because I don't feel it anymore. Whoa, whoa. They didn't marry the wrong one. The magic just started to wear off. And they're now facing with the greatest challenge to make the marriage work. Um, and what they fail to realize is that this is something that Hashem purposely designed to work that way. And, and when, when couples forget um, that it wasn't love that started this, it was the, um, the impulse that allowed love to work, okay, that's what will make them realize, okay, now i got to work on the long-term plan. Imagine you meet an old friend. Let's move on to mistake number two. Imagine you meet an old friend and you, you haven't seen him or her in years. But you barely recognize her because you know she's gained a lot of weight. She's not healthy, clearly not healthy. You know, when you were kids in the elementary school or high school, you know, she was really in shape, toothpick, but now she's a hundred pounds overweight. She even smokes, can barely move. And you say to her, Racheli, What happened to you? You look terrible. I know, I know. I know, see, that's what she says. What can I do, I love to eat. I love to eat. I hate exercise. This is who I am. And I'm so busy, I don't even get more than three hours sleep at night. But Racheli, what about your health? And she says, my health, my health is lousy. It's lousy. I get sick all the time. I can barely walk up a flight of steps without huffing and puffing. And my energy level is nothing. But what can I do? Then she says the line. on Hashem. It's the will of God. This is what Hashem wanted. She wa- He wanted me to be like this. To be big, overweight, unhealthy. It's what Hashem wants. I accept it. So ironically, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. Because it is the will of Hashem. Because nothing can happen in this world without the will of Hashem. But that doesn't mean that Hashem wanted her to suffer. That's not what it means. There are some issues that Hashem puts in, man, in man's control and women's control. And one of those issues is the ability to wreck his or her health. If I start smoking or and I start eating chips all day and that's all I eat, yes, I'm going to gain and gain weight. But if a person doesn't take care of himself, yes, the health will decline. He's going to pay the price. But that doesn't mean that's what Hashem wanted for him. Hashem allowed the person to choose a lifestyle. Condition was a consequence of those choices. So very similarly, when people find themselves in a marriage that is, God forbid, lousy, they blame God. And they say, well, I guess this is what Hashem wanted for me. And I just have to live with it. I must have been born to suffer, and this is part of my suffering. But What they fail to take into account is that just like good physical health requires proper choices, just like proper choices are also needed for good financial health, we're not just going to go gambling all our money away, then so too does a successful marriage require proper choices. To stay healthy, you need to eat properly, you need to exercise, you need to keep your stress levels under control. You need to sleep a certain amount of hours per day, the Rambam says, eight hours a day is usually the best, he says, not more than that, because then you're just wasting your day, but eight hours, and he'll chotelot, he says. So to have a good marriage, you also need to have put in the work needed. And if you don't, your marriage will suffer. And sadly, many couples find themselves in a stalled out relationship, and they can't figure out why, because start out so well, and again, they were so infatuated. They were, the, he looked at her, she looked at him. The eyes were glistening, sparkles, fireworks everywhere. What happened? What happened to the fun? What happened to the love? What happened to the passion? And many times the, uh, the answer is clear if you ask him one question. I'm going to take a page out of the Rabbi Pesach Krohn book, who was just with us, um, where he said, I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I I don't think I need myself, and I'm speaking to myself as well here. Although I'm, I'm speaking in front of a bunch of ladies, but I speak to myself as well. And he says, in the past year, how many how much time do you spend together as a couple? Now ask yourself that question. Just husband and wife. Now those that are that are just married, it's probably a lot easier. You can say, okay, I see my husband a lot. Um, but those that have kids and older kids. Gets a lot difficult, a lot more difficult. Together as a couple does not mean running errands, it doesn't mean doing chores, or it doesn't mean going to see your in laws. That's not doing things together as a couple. It means enjoying each other's company without an agenda, without talking about kids, without talking about finances, or any of the thousands of the issues that arise. Because those things are musts. You have to talk about finances. You have to talk about which school am I going to send my kid to. You have to talk about uh, we need to go buy groceries. Now, those are musts that a person has to do. I'm talking about quality time without the busyness of work, without answering the phone, without using Instagram, without text messages or looking at email. And a, a simple way to gauge the quality of, of, of the marriage, or at least where it's headed, is, is a time study. Take an average week, look at your week, and ask yourself, how much time do you spend together talking, sharing, connecting as a couple? When, when your spouse calls, are you too busy? Or do you, you answer that call? Do you, when you get a piece of news, that is not Lashon Hara, of course, do you run to share the news with your spouse because you're excited, or, or do you not? When you come home at night and, and it's late, you put everything aside to talk with your spouse, or no, I'm too tired, so I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to sleep. When was the last time you went on a date? Alone. Healthy couples, you gotta go out. And again, I speak to myself, because it's hard, it's not easy. It's not easy to go out to find the time, especially when you have a lot of children. But it, it, it's, um, it, not, not once a year, like most of us probably do on anniversaries and birthdays, or a couple times a year, but you gotta find we gotta find more time. And going on a date doesn't always have to mean that you have to spend 200 dollars at a restaurant. You can literally just go for a, for a slurpee. You can go for a coffee and spend five five dollars, ten dollars. It was just to talk. And again, not to talk about work and not to talk about things that you must talk about. And the reality is, we are we we are all very busy. And in the course of 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 history, there's probably hasn't been a, a, a busier generation than the one that, that we are in. Most of us work long hours. Most of us juggle a lot of the schedules. You know, I always say uh, the Google calendar or the, the business calendar that we have, it's gotta be you know, as, as organized as it makes us, we are more busier because what are we doing? Oh, I have a slot here. So you managed, the calendars only allowed us to open up more slots in our, in our day. In the olden days, no, I know I had this meeting. I don't know what was going to come after that, so if nothing comes, I'm free. But now I'm looking at my calendar. Oh, yeah, I am free from 6.42 to 7.19. Yeah, let's meet over there for 20 minutes, right? So it, it's, we're very, very busy. And too often, a couple is just too busy to work on their relationship, and they spend less and less time together, and then, then it's just it's like they're two roommates traveling in a parallel direction that they never cross. And then after a few kids, oh, wait, what ha- who are you again? And they don't recognize each other. And then begins the bickering and begins the little squabbles and the fights. Um, and what went wrong was that the most critical part of their marriage dissolved. And for marriage to be successful, there needs to be a climate of love. And if there's love, and there's acceptance in the marriage, then everything is okay, then fine, he's a good guy. And yes, he has his shortcomings, yes, she has her shortcomings, but it's alright. He's, he's a good guy, she's a good girl, and I'm okay with it, because there's a climate of love. Because if there isn't a climate of love, then forget it. Because then everything he does, oh, it's lousy. Everything that she does, oh man, it's horrible. Because you're not in an environment of ahava. Love takes work. Infatuation, like we said, is very easy. That's the the match. It's right there. Um, It just happens. But love takes dedication, takes focus. Requires a lot of renewal, tension, and time. So that, says Rabbi Schaefer, is another very dumb mistake that smart couples make. They forget that love is the glue of the marriage. And uh, real love takes work and commitment and dedication and needs a lot of uh, renewal. Um... But as good as love is, respect first, love second. Husband and wife are walking together on a sidewalk when suddenly he trips and falls. Oi, 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 dear honey, are you okay? Is everything all right? Are you hurt? You hurt yourself? It's okay, it's okay. As he gets up and he continues walking. Let's. Revisit the scenario. Husband and wife are walking on a sidewalk. Same man, same woman, same street. And he trips. She cries out, you klutz! What's wrong with you? Don't you see? Can't you know how to walk? What happened? Look where you're going. What's the difference between scenario one and scenario two? In the first scene, it's a newly married couple. (laughs) In The second scene, it's a couple that is already five years into marriage. Right? Funny, funny. But it, it actually teaches us and illustrates a very critical point here. Again, when a couple begins a marriage, there's a sense of newness, there's a sense of excitement. And they're anxious to see each other. They, they want each other's company, infatuation stage. But then the stage, like we said, that stage was, was designed to be very short-lived because now you got to work. Now you got to build that climate of love, that bond of love. And while many couples do focus on their marriage, um, they allow one area to slip very often, unfortunately, and that's respect because when respect slips, that's when the relationship starts to fray and sadly, it's almost natural. I want to tell you of a study that was made by a very famous world-renowned marital therapist. His name is Dr. John Gottman. Eye-opening study. He studied the interactions between couples and then compared them with reactions to other people. So what did he do? He sat a husband and a wife in front of each other, and gave him a prompt, a, a conversation prompt. Start talking, and while they were talking, question and answer, he was videotaping them. Then he asked a wife to step outside, and he asked another woman to come in to talk to the husband. He then asked a the husband to converse in the same conversation or similar conversation with the new lady that's in front of him. He then brought the wife back in, okay, and asked the husband to leave. And in place of the husband, they brought he brought another man to have the same conversation with the stranger. And what he found was the following: that regardless of whether the couples were newly married or long-time veterans of marriage, they were less polite towards each other than to the strangers. They were quicker to argue, less likely to accept the opinion of the spouse, as opposed to that to someone who they never met before. This was the study he made. Why is this? And he explains, because we are socialized to be polite. Since childhood, we are trained to use our manners, to be courteous, to remain true to politeness outside the house. Right, you go to your friend's house. Remember to say thank you. Remember to say please. That's what we tell our little kids. Remember, remember, remember. So we're like soldiers when we get to our friend's house. That's what mom said. That's what I got to do. The problem is, is that often within our homes we forgot how to act, and and we forget how we're supposed to act. The Rambam in the Ishut, fifteenth parak, gives us the formula. Look what he says: Bechensivu So the rabbis have commanded that a husband must respect his wife more than himself and love her as much as himself. And if he has a lot of money then he should give her whatever he can according to the money that he has. Don't instill upon her a lot of fear. Yedi Buroyima Benachat, speak to her nicely, Veloya Atse Velo Ragzan. Don't be a, a, a saddened, depressed while with her, or be of course uh angry. But look at the order that the Rambam put it in. The Rambam first said, Sheya Adam Mechabede Dishto and then Ohavakegufo. A man first must respect his wife more than than himself and love her as much as himself. It's respect first and then worry about the love. And that becomes a major obstacle in marriages. After a few months or a few years, the common courtesy and kavod that are given to each other begins to break down and it starts to weaken and that's when problems arise. So the third thing that a lot of people do wrong is is that idea that the, the concept that they allow respect to slip and once that happens the relationship starts to unravel respect is something that is in our 10 commandments yes it is respecting our our parents but if you think about it the torah tells us that there will come a day that man yazov God told Adam, Arishon, that you are going to, or man, Adam didn't have parents, but you are going to leave your parents and you are going to cling to your wife. So if I have an obligation to respect and honor my, my parents, I have an obligation to respect my wife. It, the, the, the fifth, the, the uh, fourth of the 10th commandments does not say that you have an obligation to love your mother and your father. It's respect, it's honor your, your parents. Respect has to come before love. And sometimes that is, that is missed. Okay, another scenario. Let's imagine the following. This for sure happens. No matter what stage of marriage, this happens. It's 6.30 at night. Husband comes home from work. Enters the apartment, enters the house. Plops himself on the sofa. Pulls out the magazine or takes out the remote control. Puts on Netflix. And he just starts watching, relax. He's tired, or whatever it is, he's reading, tired, Netflix, whatever it is, his, his mode of just doing nothing. Meanwhile, where's the wife? In the kitchen. And she's looking, did he just come in and just sit down on the sofa? I'm here making dinner. Kids are going crazy in the house, destroying the apartment or the house. And he's just gonna sit there, but she doesn't say anything. Well, I'm gonna keep my cool. Okay, we take a few deep breaths. She doesn't start steaming. A few minutes pass. It's boiling now. It's getting more, right? Rambam says you shouldn't keep this anger inside. No, <laughs> right? But she lets it boil. lets it boil. Unbelievable. Can you not hear the kids? Look, They're running up and down the stairs. They're throwing things at each other. This one's crying. This one's whining. This one needs to take a bath. And he's still sitting there reading his magazine or watching TV. Finally, she had enough After 45 minutes, he's still there. She comes into the family room, starts belting at him, points at him, goes, what are you doing? Don't you hear what's going on over here? What kind of person are you? I'm here making dinner over here. Can't you take care of the kids? Can you do something for one? It's a good five-minute rant, okay? And she comes down, goes back to the kitchen, the husband gets up. Now, most people will laud. And applaud this woman. Ah, Chazaku Baruch! Yeah, she told him not let him, you know, get away with that. And while it is correct to say that that this man is probably acting incorrectly and acting like a creep, to sit there on the couch while your wife is making food and you're totally ignoring everything that's going on is definitely lack of decency. But what she did was damaging to the marriage. So let's play out the scene again. After she rants for five minutes, he gets it. He gets up. He helps give the kid one bath, goes to the homework with the other kid, starts cleaning up the things. Okay, they feed the children. Okay, everybody is now settled. And now the wife says, okay, I'm going to go spend some time with my husband. So she sits down next to the husband. And for some reason, he moves. A little, he moves away. You're ringing a bell, right? He moves away. Not interested. She moves a little closer. He moves a little further away. She tries again and again. Not interested. And she's wondering, hmm, what did I do? What did I do? Why is this happening? But what she did, she's not aware, is that for the last two hours that five-minute rant or one-sentence rant or whatever it was has been on repeat in his brain over and over and over again to the point where he's saying to himself, I married a drill sergeant. This lady is crazy because this is all that's going on in his head over and over again, that five-minute rant. So as correct as she might be in theory, And again, lack of decency. You don't just come home and ignore everything that's going around. Um, She made a mistake. The mistake was that she forgot that a husband and wife are friends. And friends are forgiving, even when a friend acts dumb. Friends don't boss other friends around. Friends don't demand, even when they are correct. And most importantly, says Rabbi Schaefer, is friends communicate when their needs aren't met. And you can be 100% correct. And your spouse can be 100% completely wrong, as was this case when the husband came home. But if you act like a boss, if you act like a tyrant or a drill sergeant, your marriage is gonna suffer. And that is something that everyone needs to know, both men and ladies. Sometimes we get frustrated and we say things, and you, you're in the right. You you know you're in the right, but in the long run, it didn't help anything. Okay, moving along. Again, when you were dating, everything was so perfect, exhilarating. He was so filled with energy. Um, it you know he filled you with excitement and now three years of marriage oh man he's so lazy he's so messy oh he's so angry he's always vexing he's always late never on time I asked him to go buy this he never buys this he buys something else uh you know his job he's not serious about his job so she spends the next 20 years trying to change her husband same the other way around when they were going out, he felt like he was a cloud nine, right? She would get nervous, but it's okay. He was there to calm her down. Um, he was like the knight in shining armor. Come, sweetie, I'm going to take care of you. And now they're married, and every of Shabbat, uh-oh. of <laughs> Shabbat, the devil has arrived. I'm not just saying that, by the way. The Farshim explained, right, on every Erev Shabbat, the Satan is there. Front and center. He's trying to disturb everything. The Satan is there, and that's why every Friday Erev Shabbat, something's going wrong. He's there, he's, some glass is going to break, this is not going to work, the, the, this food didn't come out. He's trying to stir anger. Because he knew it was at that moment that Adam Rishon sinned, which means the world's at its most vulnerable state. Especially husband and wife are in their most vulnerable state at that moment. So, it's Erev Shabbat, and all of a sudden, why is she not getting calm? Why can't I calm her down? So he spends the next 20 years trying to change his wife, and that's a recurring theme. A recurring theme where a husband tries to change his wife, who the wife is, and the wife tries to change who the husband is, and they spend an, uh, an enormous time and energy trying to change the other, and it never works and the reason is because it's very hard to change traits we speak about this in our in our self growth class change me just like that change me like change me up? i i it's not like i am who i am too bad but at the same time certain things can't if a per, if, if you married a man that has adhd you're not going to take the adhd away from him that's that's who he is you have to learn to deal with it you have to work you work together to to combat it. It's part of the makeup of the individual. If a man marries a woman who's high-strung and is always on, on the move or whatever or, or gets nervous, okay. That's not something you can change. There's coping strategies. But it's not going to change. But we don't understand this. Well, so I take that back. We understand this when it comes to everybody else. But we don't understand this when it comes to our spouses. As a teacher, oh, I know this child has ADHD. I know I have to deal with him differently than... than this other child I know this person needs a lot more time so why can't I use those same strategies when it comes to my spouse no because I want to change my spouse I know my spouse needs more time to do something but, but no, I'm not going to accept it but you accept it with your student you accept it with your colleague at work why can't you accept it with your spouse because we feel a moral imperative to change them, to straighten them out and not only does it not work, it becomes a friction point, And it can remain a point of contention for many, many years. And each one is trying their hardest to change the other one. And each one feels their spouse doesn't accept him for who they are. And that's a problem. One of the best conversations I ever had in my life, I'll never forget this conversation, was with my uncle in Sfat. My uncle is near Sfat. He's a Rav of a Moshav. And we were having a a heart-to-heart conversation when I was in yeshiva and um, studying in Israel. And he always, he told me this one line. He goes, David, you're not going to change the world. And he, as a rabbi, I remember it, the, the the premise of the statement was that he got up to speak and he gave a heavy musar to his, to his congregation. And... Um, so we were talking about that and he says, listen, I got to do what I got to do for my con- congregation. I go, but yeah, but there's other people in this. Who you know, I, I felt it could be that, I, this was a long time ago, it was 20 years ago, it could be that I was upset with something that was going on. And he said, you're not going to change the world. The only person you can change is yourself. The only person you can change is yourself. We try to make, uh, uh, now, now for me that's, that's, you know, as a rabbi, that's that's Uh, a point that I need to really, really think about, because in a way, what are Rabbi's jobs? Rabbi's jobs are to direct people, but it's not changing people. Two different things. I can't change who you are, or you. I can try to direct you to the derech hatov, to the the path that Hashem wants us to go to. I can't change you. You have to change yourself. I have to show you what, what it is all about. And I think that was a deeper message of what he wanted to say, and and a mistake that often couples do. They spend so much time and effort trying to change their spouse when it's not their job to do so, especially that it never works anyways. FM is not a radio station, although it sounds like one. FM is the what's-in-it-for-me wavelength. Something that people occasionally listen to. It's a lifestyle that we are trained from birth. From the moment you arrive in this world, it's all about you. What do you need? How can I serve you well? What's best for you? As an infant, when you were a little, little, tiny little infant, what is your sleep schedule? When do you eat? When do you sleep? When, do you, what, when it's time to go to school, what do your parents ask you? What's the, or what's about you? What's the best school for him? Should I send them here should I send should I send her there? Then camp. Oh, maybe that camp is better for him because uh, it's more sports-like. That one's more artistic. I'm gonna go. It's always what's in it for you. Where would you gain the most? And that's pretty much how life goes until you get married. Because when you get married, there's somebody else in the picture. The whole world changes. No longer is it what's in it for you, but it's all what's in it for this guy or this girl. It's not just now where I want to go for Shabbat. She also has an opinion where to go for Shabbat. It's not what color I think the living room should be painted. It's what color she thinks the living room should be painted. For all men who shouldn't be listening to this, just go with the lady's opinion on that, so it would be better. Um, But but suddenly there's another human being involved here that also has a a set of needs and desires, a person who has own wants and preferences. Um, For most people, marriage... Is, is the first time in their lives that they actually have to take someone into account. And that's not to say that you didn't do things for others until now. You were a good friend. You did favors for people. You helped out at home. But that's the point. That was chesed. Marriage is different. Your wife isn't someone who you have to take into account sometimes. She's someone who is there all the time. And your husband is not someone who is, is just generously... Uh, volunteering to help. It's someone who you always have to take into consideration all the time. And all of a sudden, you're sharing everything. You're sharing toothpaste. You're sharing vacations. You're, you're sharing furniture. Uh, from the time you go to sleep at night, from uh, the bed that you sleep in, the home that you live in, the car that you drive. And this other person doesn't do these things the same way that you do. And that adjustment is difficult because you marry someone from the opposite gender. It's not until you get married until you realize that um, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, or is it the other way around? I'm gonna read that book. It's that way, right? That, that's it, right? Until then you realize how different in, in, indeed men and women are. He does everything, everything different than I do. She does everything different than I do. She cares so much about the smallest, pettiest things. He cares about nothing, <laughs> right? You know, I always love giving this example. See, to me, that table that you're sitting on, it's spotless, it's clean. And you're looking at it and like, this is filthy. Oh my God, if I need to, this needs a serious wash. Look at all the little crumbs over here and little coffee stains. I don't see it. I look at a clean tablecloth, you look at it like it's filthy. Uh, uh, suddenly you realize that the individual, individual you're married to thinks differently, values th- things differently than you. It's like he comes from a different planet. But there's a bigger part to this. Think about, though, if, you, if you've ever had braces, I've had a lot of work done in my mouth, but if, you, if you've ever had braces, uh, you put or, or spacers in your teeth, and then the orthodontist tightens the, the wires on the braces, a day or two later, your mouth is sore. It's so you can't eat. And you're feeling the pain. Difficult to chew. Difficult to talk. And it felt that way for a little bit. It hurt because the, the dentist was nudging your teeth to move. He was asking them to change position. And change comes with pain. And that's a good analogy for marriage. Before you were born, Hashem chose the ideal person for you to share your life with, to build your home with, to grow with. And growth doesn't come easily. It's pain. Growing pains. And often... It's your spouse's very nature that causes you to, to change the way to, to work together. The fact that he's so disorganized, the fact that she's always late, that he's so self-conscious, that she is always nervous. But one, there's only one thing that's guaranteed here, that things are going to be different between the two of you. And sometimes we get uneasy with this. We're uncomfortable uh, because I like being in my zone. Uh, I like be, I'm happy where I am. And now you're telling me I gotta do things differently now. Now you're telling me I got I have to put the toothpaste this way. But I like it now this way. I live my whole life with it this way. Why do you care if I, if I do it like this? Uh, um, you know, and inside we're saying, maybe she should change, why do I have to change? And these are the things that makes marriage um, hard to navigate. The fact that marriage demands adjustment. It's not because he's difficult. It's not because she's demanding. It's not because he does things that annoy me or she has, to, she has to have her way all the time. It's because each person has a different nature and each person has a different interest and temperament. Hashem matches the couples perfectly. You have to understand that. Um, he matches them perfectly for their ultimate success, but that success requires growth and requires change. And if they're both willing to change, they're going to live together in peace and harmony. And if they aren't, they're going to suffer. And the last thing that he mentions is the mistake of people thinking, could I have done better? After a while, most people realize that their spouse isn't perfect. I hope that you realize that you are not perfect before you realize that your, house, your spouse isn't perfect. A man might notice that, wait, there's a, there's a woman much more attractive than my wife. There's a, 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 a lady might say to herself, wow, look at that guy. He's making so much money. Maybe I would have been better off with that guy. Or it might be a particular behavior that stirs you. Why can't my wife be as organized as that woman or as a good cook as that woman? Why can't my husband be as responsible as that man or as handy as that guy? He's such a klutz, always tripping on everything, Right? And sometimes the husband and wife start thinking way back when they were, were single. You know, so-and-so was neat and organized. That person I went out with, oh, I remember that person I went out with. She was, she was much kinder than my current wife. Oh, that guy? Yeah, I remember that guy. He opened the door all the time for me. My husband door never door. opened the door for me, right? And the doubts start to surface. Did I choose the right one? Maybe I, maybe I just settled. And at times they reach that conclusion. I mean, I could have done better. And interestingly, maybe they're right. It could be that if they pursued that person, they might have had, they might have married her or him, because uh, Hashem doesn't take away a person's free will. Free will is free will. The question, though, is, if they had married that other person, would they now be happier? Imagine you have a wedding coming up, okay? and it's a big wedding and you're you're a maid of honor or your best man let's do, let's go the girl example we're talking about you're the maid of honor and you want to look your best so you go shopping and you'll find the perfect outfit and you find the perfect it's it's beautiful it's stunning right modest of course mm-hmm. and it's fantastic you buy it there's one thing missing i need to find the perfect pair of shoes the shoes, right? It's, got to, it's all the shoes, right? You gotta have, even though you got 30 pairs in your closet, it's never enough, I gotta find shoes for that outfit. Not a problem. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna to go to Yorkdale. I'm gonna go to Nordstrom. I'm gonna go and start going. I can't find the shoes. I can't find the shoes. Oh my God, what am I gonna do? It's such a beautiful dress. I can't find the shoes. I need to find the shoes. So now you're going to the, like the cheaper stores. So you're going to Winners. You're going to Marshalls. Maybe, uh, maybe I can find one over here. Nothing. Start getting desperate. Day before the wedding. Can't find the shoes. You finally go into uh, the bay, okay? Or whatever department store, and the clearing section, you see the most perfect, gorgeous pair of shoes. Oh my God, look at the leather, exquisite. Matches, workmanship, oh! The stitching, the heel, it's just the right height, the right this. It's gonna bring my my dress is gonna look gorgeous. And it's on clearance. Oh my good, 50% off. That's like, is there any better feeling than finding the perfect shoe for 50% off? Never. One problem, the shoe is two sizes too small. But I can't leave the shoe. They're stunning. So what do you do? You buy them. You take them home. You wear them for the wedding. And after the wedding, two hours of dancing, you come home, you take them off, and you cannot feel your feet. You've got bruises, you've got blisters, you can't even walk. The leather can be great. And the workmanship, fantastic. The heel, perfect height. But if the shoe doesn't fit, it's going to hurt. That's the mashal. What's a nimshal? What, How is this analogous to marriage? Before you were born, Hashem chose the perfect counterpart for you. With the strengths. Balancing the weakness your strengths balancing His weaknesses You don't know if he's fat you don't know if he's tall skinny short Plump you don't know if he's introverted. You don't know if he's extroverted. This was this was decided before you were even born 40 days 40 days Abayim Yom Hashem already made the patch the match You don't know if he's gonna be a kind person. You don't know if he's gonna be wealthy You don't know if he's gonna be poor if you had said to yourself, why should I settle? I don't need second best. Look how good this other guy is. Look how tall this guy is. Why do I have to settle with a medium-height guy when I get the tall guy, the tall, handsome guy? You might have well succeeded that guy in marrying that guy, but you would have suffered. You would have suffered because you wore a shoe that was too small. Because the best qualities in the, in the world put together in one person doesn't mean that he's a fit for you. Perfect workmanship, perfect leather, but it was too small. The shoe has to fit for, it to, for you to be comfortable. For you to have a happy marriage, you have to find the one with the right fit. A marriage is a complex weave of needs and emotions. Some personalities mesh, some clash. To find the right ones, it's a lot of work. That's why we leave it to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's why we say that Hashem putting together a match is like splitting the Yamsuf, speaking of Parashat Beshalach this week, splitting the Yamsuf. That's the point. Hashem chose the right one for you. You and him fit together like a hand in a glove. Is he the, is he the most handsome guy in the world? Uh, 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 to you he should be. Is there ha- hand, more handsome men in the world? Yeah. Is there richer guys in the world? Definitely. Is there more handy men in the world? Yeah, for sure. Could you have done better? Maybe. But maybe better doesn't mean a better marriage. And that's the difference between the two. Better doesn't mean that you would be happy together. And it reminds me of the concept of the, the Tenth Commandment, since we spoke about one commandment already. The last commandment, I think I spoke to a couple recently about this. <clears throat> there is the last commandment in the, in the Aseret HaDibro. It always struck me as odd. Do not covet your friend's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's house. And I always wondered okay, I get the wife. I get the wife. It's basically exactly what we're saying here. Why the house? Why 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 the house? And it's only when you get older do you realize how 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 that commandment in in many ways my explains Sum up, sum ups all the previous nine, because it's only when you get together, it's only when you see the other people's possessions and homes, you start to realize, hmm, maybe I could have had that if I had only been with that person. I could have been living there. I could have had that car. Of course, house is not just a house; it's all possessions. If I would have married that guy, if I would have married that girl, oh, that girl became a heart surgeon. Mine only became a uh i don't know a small little mini entrepreneur but i could have been there i could have had that house and it's that 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 that, that commandment is is i think reiterating that point is that it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be happy you could have yes you could have married that guy who was a heart surgeon or a doctor or a big shot or a tall, handsome guy. You could it would have worked, but you would have probably been miserable. Your, your feet would swell. You would come home at night and you'd be in total pain. And part of creating a happy marriage is knowing that Hashem knows better than you do what you need and trusting that He brought to you the right person. And now you have to do the work to make your marriage as wonderful as it was meant to be. Okay. So that's enough I think to think about in terms of our relationships. Um so I just want to just do a, a few halachot of tarat mishpacha that um that are not as sensitive or personal. I don't want to I want I don't want to get into the things of of uh, preparations for mikvah and stuff. Maybe we'll find a lady to teach that or remind everybody here for that. But there are certain things that come up that I think, you know, a few few questions that we can look at uh, and and get an an idea, a broad idea. (coughs) I want to speak about a few things. Number one, what is the the Nida status of a woman after childbirth, both natural and cesarean? Because we do have some... Some younger women in the audience. Um, I also want to look look at is a woman permitted to follow the opinion of a doctor who might diagnose blood that she sees stemming from a wound and not from her uterus? So, how serious can I take the doctor's opinion? Um, And lastly, What is the status of a gynecology uh, uh, examination? Sorry about that. What's the status with that? So those are a few things that happen and we'll take a look at it. So the Torah in the beginning of Parashat Tazriyah uh, establishes the halakha of what we call Tumat Leda. Tumat Leda is the status of impurity that comes upon a woman after childbirth. If the child is a boy, the Torah tells us, then that status of impurity lasts for seven days. If it's after birth of a girl, the woman remains impure for 14 days. Now, now, just to put us a, a total side note, most women after childbirth bleed longer than seven or 14 days. So, but this is like this is the minimum. Um, now, the status of tumat leda, the impurity of childbirth, shares properties halachid properties of tumat nida, which happens from menstruation. So, the physical con- the, the physical contact between a, a woman and a man. forbidden for seven days after the birth of a boy and 14 days after the birth of a girl even in the theoretical case that a woman who did not experience any blood during childbirth she still cannot engage in any marital relations with her husband for one or two weeks depending if it was a boy or a girl now after that period has passed again Assuming that she's still not that she's not bleeding again, most ladies continue to bleed you know, a little well after one or two weeks after childbirth. But let's say she wasn't; she can count her seven clean days, all right, and then go in uh, into the mikveh, and she can be with her husband. So now, in presenting the halakha of tumat Leida, the Torah writes, "Isha ki veyaleda, which means uh, when a, when a, when a woman. Uh, is impregnated impregnated, and gives birth. And the Chachamim say that the halacha of Tumat Leida applies only if the birth occurred in the same place as conception, meaning if the birth was natural. In a case where a cesarean, uh, uh, where, where the child was surgically removed from the mother, uh, the halachah tumat leida does not apply. Based on this, so if a woman, um, if a woman who gave birth through a C-section is not tame at all, the birth does not affect the the physical contact uh, uh, that that she could have with with her husband. The question arises. Okay, so again, if, if a woman has a C-section, she has no tumat tumat leida, assuming she saw no uh, no. Okay, she, there was no blood. They just opened her up. Um, that's clearly blood. I'm sure there was blood, but not blood from the uterus. The question arises, what is the law uh, with regards to Nida if she gave birth via cesarean only after experiencing labor pains? Okay, so she, she, she experienced labor pains, contractions, but the doctor said, C-section. Oh, baby's not in the right position. We're opening you up. So there's a rule that it says, That means that bleeding is presumed to occur once the woman enters the advanced stages of labor. So when a woman reaches a point in her labor where she can no longer walk without any assistance, so she's really deep into the labor, um, or she finds it necessary to uh, to call a, a midwife, if that's the case, or the nurse to... to you know, she's anticipating delivery, then at that point she's for sure considered nida, even though they don't see any blood. So it would seem that a woman who reached this point of labor is considered a nida, even though they opened her up and they saw no blood. Rebubbada Yosef famously says uh, that if no blood was seen prior to the operation, the woman is not considered a nida, uh, even though she reached advanced stages of labor before the C-section. And he says that Bleeding only occurs if the woman gives birth naturally. If the birth takes place via cesarean, we don't assume that the woman uh, bled during labor. So therefore, if the woman did not experience any bleeding during the labor and eventually underwent a C-section, she's not considered anida and she could be with her husband uh, right away. However, if the water broke, which is uh, usually an early sign of labor, then that according to most post scheme um, means that there has been some blood that has been released from the uterus and therefore she is a <clears> nida <throat> whether or not she, um, she saw blood or she didn't see blood uh, even if it was done with, uh, with a cesarean. So those are the things uh, to know. So just to recap for that Generally, uh, if it's just a plain up cesarean, you're scheduled on this day, C section, no blood, you don't have to keep Nida after that. Um, if you started labor, even if you want to advance labor, but you saw no blood and no cesarean, again, don't have to keep Nida for that. But if the water broke or there was, of course, you saw some blood, then you are in the, in the status of Nida and you have to follow the, uh, all the things. Okay, <clears throat> the Gemar Masach Masechet Shabbat, daf. Pei Zion, page 87, talks about some of the differences between the bodies of the Jews and the bodies of the non-Jews. What does this mean? How are our bodies? We look the same. We all have eyes, nose, ears. How how are we different? The Gemara explains that the bodies of non-Jews are different because of the food that they consume. And goyim eat everything they eat reptiles, and I've seen it's disgusting. They hunt everything, they eat everything, insects, frogs, many foods that the Jews don't eat. And because of this, their bodies are different. And one of the differences is that the inner temperature of the bodies of the non jews says the Gemara is warmer um, than the Jewish people. So the Khatam Sofer famously writes that from here we see that it is suspicious, meaning we have to treat it as suspicious if a non-Jewish doctor um <clears throat> diagnosis of Jewish patient meaning we shouldn't we, we can't really take what they're saying literally and the reason is because these doctors base their opinions uh, on the majority of the people they see which are non-jewish patients um so how can their opinions be accurate on Jewish patients if all the studies and all the uh, the examinations and conducts that they did were based on non-jewish patients so he says, that you cannot rely on a non-Jewish doctor to tell you anything about uh, about things. Now, when it comes to life or death, I don't know if that was what you were going to refer to. Yeah. I'm just saying, like most most of the studies are majority non-Jewish. Yes. Okay. So okay, we're going to we're gonna get to that. Um, uh, we're going to get that. We're going to see about that soon. But when it comes to life or death, for sure this wouldn't apply because we follow the rule of Safek pikuach nefes. Safek pikuach nefes. it comes to life or death question, any sound opinion we have to take into consideration, okay? Um, so, uh, so the, the, uh, we, we would follow anyone. Now, when it comes to asking a doctor's opinion, you saw blood, and you don't know where this blood ca- came from, or, or you felt that it was a wound, or whatever it is, can I go and ask my non-Jewish gynaecologist, okay, about her opinion? If she says, yes, this came from a wound, this is not from your uterus, can I trust her? And if I, if she if she says it's not from the uterus, then and I trust her, I'm allowed to trust her, then I'm not Nida. But according to what the Khatam Sofer says, I'm not allowed to trust her, okay? I have to assume that this blood is from the uterus, and I, I have to now keep keep Nida. So um, this is the question that, that was asked. Would it be permissible to seek the question from a secular doctor? Do we say no, non, non-religious doctors wouldn't be able to give us the proper guidance. So Ravadjah says that there was a time where this would be true, that a lady would only be allowed to go to a religious Jewish doctor to get uh, opinions. and But today is different. He goes, because today we live in a very technologically advanced culture, <clears throat> we do permit ladies to go and seek guidance from secular doctors and non-Jewish doctors, even about blood flow. And more than that, he says, the doctors today have the resources to accurately determine the origin of the flow. They have, have images, uh, capturing technologies, other means, they can tell you undeniably where that blood, blood is from. And, and therefore, he writes, there is no problem for a woman to have a non-Jewish doctor, and that non-Jewish doctor even tell her where it's from, and we can believe that non-Jewish doctor, he or she, okay? Assuming they are qualified, right? Not just some random person. So being the fact that these qualified doctors use technologies to yield accurate results, they could use the doctor's opinion regarding the flow of of nida. Uh, Which brings us to the last piece uh, of halakha, which is, does a gynecological examination make a woman nida? So, again, let me, let's, re, let's restate the rule that we said before. En petichata kever belodam, which means that a woman's uterus is opened, it's assumed that blood exited from the uterus. So the implication of this rule is that a woman is presumed to nida, like we said, when she reaches advanced stages of, of labor, because that's when the uterus opens. It goes to a certain point, we have to assume that blood exited the uterus, Regardless or, or regardless of whether or not we saw blood or not, we have to assume blood came out. Um, the question now is, what if I'm having, what if a woman is having an exam, an exam, a gynecological exam, and the gynecologist is checking up there to making sure everything's okay, and I don't have to tell you the details, but things are being opened over there. So, um, the, and, and sometimes it's done with medical instruments as well. So this causes a ta kebe, This causes an opening of the uterus and should seemingly render the woman a nida because like we said, that's the rule. So one rabbi, Rabbi Yechez Golanda of Prague, Prague, he was known as a noda biuda, he ruled that a woman who goes through an internal gynecological examination is considered a nida. R- regardless if she saw blood or not, once he holds the uterus was open, nida. Um, but others disagree. And the reason why they disagree is because they hold that that rule applies only when the uterus is opened from within. In other words, the baby is pushing itself out from inside the, the woman or, or the blood that's coming from the menstrual blood that is pushing its way out. That's when it applies. But when it's open from the outside, such as using a medical instrument, then it doesn't apply, and we assume that the blood... That, that is seen, okay is coming from the medical instrument and and, and the wound there and that's the wounding of the of Chacham He writes that if blood was cited during a medical examination or as a result of a medical examination, then then he should you should always go see a rabbi because you know they'll ask a few questions did it hurt, did it pierce or something over there? But if there was no blood seen, then a woman is not in the state of nida because it was done from the outside and um, there's nothing to worry about. But if, it, if, but if it caused some bleeding, you would have to go and get it, uh, uh, consult with a competent halachic uh, authority. So those are a few situations that, that come up every so often with ladies. Um, I think irrespective of the age that a woman is in. So it's good to know that uh, we have Vadia uh, uh, more lenient than some of the other poll scheme that uh, that would say that you, you are not put in the in those uh, situations. I will pause now to take some questions on everything that we said over the last one hour and seven minutes. Feel free mm-hmm. to go, and I hope I can answer them. Yes? Um, so you said how the poor were born the marriage that you're supposed to marry. So mm-hmm. how do we explain um, divorce? Right. Well, there's there's two answers to that question. One is you could have just married the wrong person, right? And there's there's uh, there's uh, there's two there's two sets. The Qubalim say that you're, you have two soulmates. There's two people meant meant for you. There's one main one and one second one. Um, but really, the answer is you just you know you made the wrong choice. Right And that's why divorces happen and, it's, and it's, that's why you know that's why divorce is a mitzvah. You don't you never think of it that way, but to get a divorce is a mitzvah because you know you are you are doing something that needs to happen. we are writing a document that will tear apart the bond, and that's something that is good. you know the other day I saw something and I even shared with my friends the other night of the hula. And someone posted a selfie on Twitter. Must have probably was on Instagram too. Says the last selfie before our divorce. It was in Hebrew. It was in Israel. And and she, and she wrote a caption there that that said, "Baruch Hashem, with love, we are both going our 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 separate paths." And they were both smiling in the picture, right? So it's almost like for. Like, Okay, they realize it just wasn't meant to be, and we accept that, and we're not going to fight it, and we wish you luck, and I still love you as a Jew. And I guess halvay, all marriages end like that, right? You know, if it's going to end, let it be like that, rather than, God forbid, a lot more serious uh, repercussions. Yeah, I was wondering if you talk about how you said the the devil is around. I've never heard of that before. Can we save that for another class? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, uh, in in a nutshell, it's just a, it's a, it's a very opportune time for the satan to to, to cause problems. Like I said, that, that that's the moment when Adam Harishon sinned. So that's the the essence and core of all averot in the world. It's a time of. Um, it leads to anger and he's trying to, to, to break up the peace of Shabbat he knows that Shabbat is a time of peace that's why it's called Shabbat Shalom and if I can break that up I can prevent a lot of bracha coming to the world and that's what his plan is that's what his goal is and it's uh, and it's and it happens in every home and it's almost it's so constant every week consistently in and out and it's there and it's, it's just taking a few deep breaths and making sure that but it could be a good topic for another time. Yeah. Our next uh, our next class was about the Ruby. No, that's it. Okay, everyone. Well, thank you for coming and um, I I I hope uh, I hope it was somewhat informative and uh, did my best to please the different age groups that we have over here. And Bezrat Hashem, next next uh, round in the Shavuotim, if we if it's next year in two years, you know it's always good to review these ideas, whether it's Tarat Mishpacha or just Shalom Bayit, marriage harmony, whatever it is, you know there's a lot to work on. No one's perfect. We all have our faults. Again, myself included, and um, understand that it's a work in progress, and there's there's a goal at the end that hopefully. And the husband and wife realize that we did this together and we were successful. So, with that, we will uh, we will end. All right, you. you're welcome.